We say the suspect was a former employee. Around 200 customers were inside at the time of the shooting. After the incident, nearby communities went on lockdown. The suspect was arrested after a manhunt. With more than half of American adults receiving at least one COVID dose, the race is on to vaccinate the rest of those who are eligible. About 20% of adults say they don't want a shot. This says EU regulators find a possible link between the Johnson & Johnson shot and a rare blood clot. But they say the benefits outweigh the risks. As you know, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine remains on pause inside the U.S. President Biden says he's willing to compromise to get bipartisan support for his infrastructure project, but he's so far revealing zero hints on what he would lose from his proposal to win GOP support. Biden told Republicans he wants to see a GOP counteroffer by mid-May and that a corporate tax rate increase will be key for paying for it all. And now to that guilty verdict in the Derek Chauvin trial. Guilty on all counts. The verdict quickly reverberating from the courthouse to the streets of Minneapolis and streets across our country. Our Alex Perez reports on the verdict and what comes next. Members of the jury, I will now read the verdicts. The jury deliberating just 10 and a half hours and with the nation watching, Judge Peter Cahill reading their unanimous verdict. We the jury in the above entitled matter as to count one unintentional second-degree murder while committing a felony, find the defendant guilty. Verdict count two. We, the jury, in the above-entitled matter as to count two, third-degree murder, perpetrating an eminently dangerous act, find the defendant guilty. Verdict count three. We, the jury, in the above-entitled matter as to count three, second-degree manslaughter, culpable negligence, creating an unreasonable risk, find the defendant guilty. The jury of seven women and five men, which included six people of color, stayed late last night and came in early this morning. They worked swiftly and didn't send out a single question during their deliberations. Are these your verdicts? So say you one, so say you all. Yes. 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 In Houston, George Floyd's family members watching as the verdict was read. Find the defendant guilty. other family members erupting. And in George Floyd Square, near where he was murdered, jubilation. The prosecution built their case around that video seen around the world, the 9 minutes and 29 seconds that sparked a racial reckoning movement, telling jurors, believe your own eyes. It's exactly what you knew. It's what you felt in your gut. It's what you now know in your heart. This wasn't policing. This was murder. The teenager who shot that video, Darnella Frazier, taking the stand, testifying off camera. Like so many eyewitnesses, she's still haunted by what she saw. When I look at George Floyd, I look at, I look at my dad. I look at my brothers, I look at my cousins, my uncles, because they are all black. I look at how that could have been one of them. It's been nights. I stayed up apologizing and, and apologizing to George Floyd for not doing more. A dozen law enforcement witnesses, including the Minneapolis chief of police, testified against Derek Chauvin. To continue to apply that level of force to a person 
proned out, handcuffed behind their back, um, that that in no way, shape, or form is anything that um, uh, is by policy, is not part of our training, and it is certainly not part of our ethics or our values. The prosecution's medical experts were blunt. A healthy person subjected to what Mr. Floyd was subjected to would have died as a result of what he was subjected to. Chauvin opting not to take the stand in his own defense. I will invoke my Fifth Amendment privilege today. His attorney calling just seven witnesses to the prosecution's 38. They sought to convince jurors that George Floyd's heart disease and drug use led to his death, not Chauvin's knee on his neck. Derek Chauvin did exactly what he had been trained to do over the course of his 19-year career. The use of force is not attractive but it is a necessary component of policing. But the jury was not convinced, and tonight we have their judgment. What Derek Chauvin did to George Floyd wasn't policing, it was murder. The former officer put in handcuffs himself as he was let out of court. All right, thanks to Alex, and for more on this guilty verdict, we're joined by ABC News contributor Brian Buckmeyer, host of the Law and Crime Network. Thanks so much for joining us in person here, Brian. Uh, so I've been asking everybody the same question. Was this the reaction, the verdict that you were expecting? Kind of yes and no. The lawyer in me expected it. The lawyer in me knows the laws, the facts, the, the how it all fit. But the man inside of me was skeptical because we've been here before where there was an officer who we expected to be convicted but didn't. So there was a bit of reservation, but when the verdict came out, it fit what my mind and, and my legal expertise expected. Hey, you and I were discussing this earlier. You talked about how there was a lot of paperwork. What do you think was the difficult aspect, and were you surprised uh, that it took just over 10 hours to, to come to the verdict? Yeah, there was a lot for the jury to dig into, and when we were talking about this, we talked about the fact that no one goes to jury school to understand how uh, the facts and the law should the come together, and the terminology, substantial force, intervening factor, and so for that, I thought it might take some time, and so I was a little bit surprised that we're here today talking about a verdict I would have expected tomorrow, or maybe even the day after. And there were a dozen complaints against Derek Chauvin. Uh, the, the prosecution was very clear at the outset to say that this is not the state versus police. Um, but do you think that, does the Minneapolis Police Department get a pass here as far as continuing to keep him on despite all of these articles against him? So I think the prosecution did a smart and strategic job of, of kind of parsing through what they wanted to argue and what they didn't want to take on. Taking on the entire Minneapolis Police Department is a hard task uh, to do. So they made it very narrow and only took on Derek Chauvin. But I don't think this gives them a pass. And it's something that Eric Nelson said, that the reasonable officer wouldn't do this in broad daylight. The reasonable officer wouldn't do this with so many cameras on them. But Derek Chauvin did that. And I think he did that because he believed he could get away from this. He could get away from doing this to George Floyd. And I think that's what we really have to attack. Why did Derek Chauvin believe he could do this in broad daylight with so many witnesses, so many cameras? That's the systemic racism. That's the systemic problem that needs to be addressed. History shows, though, that it is difficult to charge and convict police officers. Do you feel in any way that this case changes that? I think it does change to some degree because now we have a model. Now we have an example that we can point to and say, this is egregious police brutality that we will convict of a top count. Not just manslaughter, but murder. Uh, and I think that's going to help prosecutions, prosecutors sorry, find the roadmap to getting that conviction. I think it's very similar to what we saw with Harvey Weinstein, where it was hard to get someone convicted of a crime if 
right away. Now there's a roadmap. Now there's an understanding. This is criminal. This is not. And this will get you convicted for murder. Brian Buckmeyer, been, it's been a privilege to have you holding our hands along throughout this entire trial. We, we appreciate it. And now we're going to go to correspondent Rachel Scott, who is once again at Black Lives Matter Plaza in Washington, D.C. Rachel. Hey, Lindsay, you know, we were out here as that verdict was being read in the courtroom today, and I remember watching it on my phone, and I turned around, and I saw this man, Pastor Devin Turner, and he fell to his knees. You fell to your knees when you heard that guilty verdict being read. I just want you to take me back to that moment. What was going through your mind when you heard those words, guilty? You know, uh, Rachel, I, I felt elation. I felt joy. I felt peace, I felt belief uh, that, that, that God shined upon us and gave us justice and that God spared us from an adverse reaction to this, this peaceful environment where music's playing here in the nation's capital. It just felt good. I was moved to tears. Uh, I shouted hallelujah because, you know, I, I'm a black man, I'm a preacher, and I've been profiled by police driving, pulled over, I'm in a suit, asked me to get out of my vehicle, want to check my vehicle. I have twin sons at home. I've had the talks with my 10-year-old twin sons. Here's what happened to Tamir Rice, um, George Floyd. Um, this is why daddy responds this way when police pull over. And for some people, it's like, my black skin is more dangerous than a, a gun. They, they look at my skin and will say, oh, he must be a problem. And so I felt the peace of God that the Lord answered my prayers and so many others' prayers that we got justice. It doesn't bring George back. It doesn't bring Ahmaud Arbery back, Breonna Taylor, Emmett Till. It doesn't bring back so many black lives we've lost. But it's a step in the right direction. I just felt that peace and I felt elation for that. This is a really personal moment for a lot of black Americans in this country. Did you see yourself in George Floyd, in his story? I identify with George Floyd because I've been profiled and harassed by police before. Uh, my parents are from Mississippi. My mother drank from a colored-only fountain. Um, I remember visiting in Mississippi family and being harassed by white police officers. Uh, like I said, even here as an adult, um, it could have been me. I could have been cuffed. I could have been pinned to the ground. I could have been choked. And so George Floyd represents all of us as black people. And I think that's why there's such a response of elation and joy amongst the black community and people that empathize with the black community. It is a sense of something that I've gotten from talking to people out here that it doesn't matter. And that's what you said to me. It doesn't matter necessarily what you do. You could be in a suit. You could have an occupation. You can rise to a certain level. But there still is a history of systemic racism that prevails in this country. You were taking a moment and you were exhaling. You were on your knees, you were crying tears of joy. But in a lot of ways, it feels like you're still holding your breath. Holding your breath for real change. What does that look like? You know, um, we, say, we celebrate the day, 
but tomorrow there's more work to be done. So right now I'm taking in like so many other people are here smiling. I'm taking in the fact that yes, 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 God, yes. But we know tomorrow we have to deal with Adam Toledo. You know, we have to deal with Dante Wright. We have to deal with uh, an off-duty security officer from the Pentagon who shot and killed two black lives here in the D.C. area just a week and a half ago. So there's always the work to fight for justice. But it just feels good to take it. I've learned to celebrate the victories along the way because if I look at it too big, Rachel, it's like, well, we're, we haven't made any progress, but we have. It's a step. It's a step. We celebrate these steps toward the ultimate destiny that we hope to achieve in this country. Legislative change. You want to see that as well from lawmakers, from the president. We're just outside the White House. Absolutely. Legislative change. But one thing I've learned is that you can't legislate somebody's heart. Um, if you try to change somebody's habit without their heart changing, you'll find that they just behave in front of you or when the camera's rolling, but when the camera's not around or people aren't watching, when the accountability's not there, they're going to behave a different way. It's like a child. If a child's heart hasn't changed to know this is wrong and this is right, the child will be obedient in front of the parent. When the parent's not watching, they'll do something else. But if it's ingrained in the child to have integrity and to have a connection to a higher power to say, somebody's always watching me, then I can't do this, no matter if I think someone is watching, because he's always watching, and it doesn't resonate with my heart. So I'm praying for legislation change, but I'm also praying for heart change, that we'll view each other as human beings, that there be one race, the human race, of many different shades and colors, and that we let our diversity bring us together to learn and glean from one another and understand each other's cultures instead of dividing us and saying, I'm better than you because you're different, or you're better than me because you're different. No, we're all made in the image of God, and we all need more love and more peace in our communities. So that's what I'm hoping for. Lindsay, certainly a lot of emotions here outside of the White House that we're seeing in the aftermath following that guilty verdict there out of Minnesota. But you heard it straight from Pastor Devin here. What he's hoping for most is not only policy change, but a change in the heart of Americans, Lindsay. Right, as he said, you cannot legislate someone's heart. Rachel Scott, our thanks to you and the pastor as well. And joining us now with more reaction to the verdict is Dr. Tracy Kizzy, a 25-year veteran of the Denver Police Department and co-founder of the Center for Policing Equity, along with Bob Boyce, former NYPD chief of detectives of an ABC News contributor. Bob, we'll start with you. What was your reaction to the verdict? I thought it was a just verdict. And I look at uh, Chief Arandano of the Minneapolis Police Department, some, some really uh, seminal moments within the trial, when he said, and I think he spoke for all law enforcement, this is not our values, these are not our ethics. And he walked away from him. And he said it wasn't our training either. So that, that op the optic of that video was just too compelling. The, the jury was never going to listen to any defense argument when you saw what happened there. So I think it's a good day. I'm hoping for a safe night for everybody tonight uh, in the protests and in marches, all these things, so we can come together and go to a better place. And Dr. Kizzy, same question I've been asking everybody tonight as a black woman who worked for decades in law enforcement, your reaction to the verdict? Um, you know, mine was, I think, what you heard in one of your previous interviews, I was holding my breath. Um, we had been here before. And so I was surprised, one, how quickly the verdict came. But I have to agree um, with Bob that, you know, Chief Ardano did an incredible job of articulating what the sort of ethics are of law enforcement and public safety and how should you be engaging with community 
Um, we'll see. We'll see what this does and what this means as we move forward. But again, I was you know surprised. I can tell you, I was relieved. Um, I exhaled like everyone else because I there was a part of me that I wasn't so sure um, that folks would um, really see what we witnessed almost a year ago, and that is a homicide that occurred in broad daylight. And Dr. Kizzy, staying with you for a moment, the group that you represent now is trying to increase trust between police and minority communities. What's the biggest problem in trying to build up that kind of trust, and how do you start to solve that problem? Well, I would say there's probably a new number of problems, so it's not just one. When you talk about trust, it's one, how are you defining that? And what are we expecting when we say we want a trusting relationship? And really the hurdle in doing that is the historical mistrust that is happening and has occurred and some, you know, some spaces it continues. And so it is really historically, how do you begin to act in a way in which people believe what you say and that you truly do want to have change? And when that means that you want to have change, that means not just talking about it, that's being about it. That's how do you move? How do you think about things differently? Um, what does public safety mean? How is it defined? How do you understand it? And how do you understand how others are experiencing it? So the biggest hurdle, one of them, is just the historical mistrust. And how do you begin to move forward with folks who don't want to come to the table and have this conversation because they're, they're exhausted? So it is a lot of that work. And Chief Boyce, during closing arguments, the prosecution emphasized that policing is a noble profession and that Officer Chauvin was an outlier. Why do you feel that that was so important to make that distinction uh, in this case and going forward? Well, the prosecutor clearly said, uh, clearly said this wasn't policing. This was murder. It wasn't policing. Um, being a 35-year veteran and... Um, I work with uh, Tracy in the, in the NYPD, retraining all of our officers in 2014 in the aftermath of Garner, of Eric Garner. So we de-escalation training, all these things. We walked away from this back then. I know it's a process. It's not something you uh, snap your finger and it's over overnight. You have to keep going forward with it, uh, uh, stopping all neck restraints, all these things. It needs to be a na national standards across the board to get this done. It's not an easy process. Hopefully this is a step forward in that process and, uh, and moving forward and more transparent, more communication, all these things we have to teach and have to demand accountability. And Bob, we'll stay with you, but the question is really for both of you. We saw the celebrations from the Floyd family and many others across the country. Where do police departments and the communities they serve go from here? And do you expect to see any major changes anytime soon? I do. I've seen some in the last 11 months have been just the worst 11 months in, in, uh, that I've seen in American law enforcement. It's been rough. Nobody wants to go through this anymore. Uh, we want we want complete transparency. We want change. We want to work well with our community partners, and we want to put out a, put out a broad standard that this is a new do, this is a new day, and we're not going to do this anymore. So this is what accountability is all about. And I see something underfoot right now that I'm really encouraging is that other officers are trained to step in and stop a, a fellow officer from from stepping over that line. That has to happen. We should, be, we should have been doing this a long time ago. We're doing it now. I was taught in 1983 when I became a police officer, stop your partner from going forward. When he's, you know, protect him from the problem. Protect a prisoner or whoever you're dealing with in the street. That's individual accountability has to happen. 
Dr. Kizzy, last same question to you and the final question. Do you see that change coming soon? Um, it's on the way, but there's still a lot of work to be done. And, and, and Bob has just outlined some of the things that need to happen currently to begin to reduce some of the harms that are happening. But it doesn't get in the way of the real work that needs to be done. And as you think about, you know, not just what do you do, excuse me, with, you know, de-escalation training and those types of things, the real questions on the table is what is the role of law enforcement today? What does it mean to have public safety? And what does that look like? And you find in a lot of cities throughout the country, those are the fundamental questions on the table right now. What is the role for law enforcement? And is there a role for law enforcement? And if so, what does it look like? But really it is community-centered and community-driven really starting to talk about what public safety means to them and what it means. So again, the work has not ended. It's never ended. And there's still much more to do, but there's absolutely things we can be doing right now. Dr. Tracy Kizzy, Robert Boyce, thank you both for your time. Appreciate your analysis. Thanks so much. And stay with us. Much more coverage ahead of the Derek Chauvin verdict and what comes next. So, uh, been asking everybody the same question. Your reaction to this verdict? 
you know, it doesn't surprise me that there was a verdict uh, in of guilty. And I think that the second-degree manslaughter was pretty much a given from some of the early testimony. Uh, the other two, I think, were developed. I think in large part, the jury found extremely dispositive the fact that there was no treatment after George Floyd went limp. And, you know, I'm finding it very hard to believe and listening to all these people talk about this as an example of systemic racism when law enforcement has been condemning this situation roundly since the video came out. Uh, so I think that, you know, we need to take a step back and realize this is not the time to defund law enforcement. It's not the time to reduce the amount of training. We need to find out why this happened in this specific department and recognize this man obviously was an outlier. And some have said that America was on trial in this case, while others, including the prosecutor himself, said that this case was solely about one man, Derek Chauvin, and not about policing. Do you feel that this trial ended up being bigger than just Derek Chauvin? No, I think the prosecutors recognize when you're going to call people like Chief uh, Arondo and you're going to call uh, Investigator Blackwell and other amazing law enforcement officers who work in Minneapolis, and you're going to put them in front of a jury so they can see the professionalism and compassion they have, you can't indict the entire law enforcement uh, department. And I think that it's the same with law enforcement across the United States. Thousands, tens of thousands of law enforcement officers perform their jobs admirably, professionally, and compassionately every day. There's often talk of precedent. You defend police officers in court. Do you think that this case could make your job more difficult or have any impact at all on future cases against police officers? No, I don't. I think that when we look at these situations and we hear, you know, the, the thin blue line and the blue wall of silence, I see people coming out and testifying, my clients testifying against bad police officers all the time. And, you know, this is a Hollywood-driven notion that law enforcement never testifies or never gets rid of bad law enforcement officers. I think juries listen to evidence. I think the juries listen to the evidence. They watch the video. And they said there was no excuse for any use of force, especially when George Floyd went limp. And at that point, they decided, I think correctly, that this was completely inappropriate. And I don't know a single law enforcement officer who has supported what Derek Chauvin did. Is there anything that you think or that you hope will come out of this landmark trial? I think one of the things we need to look at is to stop this rush to fire law enforcement officers immediately before you get to do an investigation. There is a case, Garrity versus New Jersey, where law enforcement agencies can force an officer to answer questions. And I still have questions watching that video. Where in the world did Derek Chauvin decide to do that? Where did he learn it? And we heard it wasn't taught in the academy. It wasn't taught by anyone in his department. But we lost the opportunity to make that department better and learn more about where that, that maneuver came from and where his decisions came from because there was a rush to terminate him immediately. Even if he's going to be charged later, we lost that opportunity. And lastly, you've been in Eric Nelson's shoes in that you represent police officers. How well would you say that he argued Derek Chauvin's case? And would you say that a guilty verdict was inevitable given the facts? I think the second-degree manslaughter was probably the toughest thing for him to combat. And I, I was not surprised at all when they convicted based on that. Um, I think he was trying to do what he's constitutionally required to do, is to try to raise a reasonable doubt and, as Sandra Day O'Connor said, test the evidence in the crucible of justice. I think he was 
you know, recognizing his client came in with a presumption of innocence and there was going to be a lot of evidence that came forward. And the prosecution did an excellent job of constantly hitting the fact that the force at some point was no longer justifiable in any way whatsoever. Lance LaRusso, appreciate your insight and your time with us. Thanks for having me. And stay with us much more on this verdict ahead.